All right. I will let everyone join. As always, if you want to join the conversation, I always say this out loud as I'm typing it. Join the conversation. Please feel free to request a video join. pin that and someone's already requested we have to ask a question we got a couple on here and we'll just fire away and see what happens get some people on today and we'll see how it goes i assume you guys can all hear me i think i just accepted someone's invite so we got people joining i guess it's kind of like the random day of questions with people hello hi how are we doing yeah, man, I'm fine. I'm from India, right? Um, nice. oh, we've got India. I've had India, Syria, wow. UK. Well, wow. going across. Crazy. Yeah, I have a few doubts about uh, my sprinting. Let's hear it. What questions do you have? Yeah. Um. Now I'm doing a ten five right now. Okay. Yeah, but um, you know, I want to know about how to strengthen my tendons and everything. Gotcha. Okay. When yeah, uh, mainly, mainly one thing, uh, I'm not recovering from my uh, old injuries like hamstrings and uh, bicep femoris, like, you know. Mm -hmm. The best person yeah. for tendon health on Instagram I know is Jake Tura. Okay. So if you check him out, he's got books, he has programs, Wow. and I would do him a disservice to even try to explain all of it in detail. Because he okay. has a whole protocol he uses, and I've used that many times myself and other people. So that's my advice okay. for tendon stuff. He's it's the best. Okay, and uh, yeah, one more question. Uh, I mean, uh, I have a small request from you. Hello. 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 Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, I'm hearing you, and uh, I have a small request. What's the request? Uh, yep. Uh, um, uh, will you guide me to get down my timing from 10.5 below? For sprinting? Yeah, in sprinting. I, my biggest advice, I wish I could. I'm not a professional sprint coach. So if I could do that, I would, I would absolutely love to help you. But I don't think I'd be the best service for that. Because I would love to run that fast too. That's fast. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you are the good coach, right, in the gym? I, I do like to think. I think I'm a good coach, but when someone's working to get that close, it's real. At least the athletes I've worked with, it's most beneficial when a coach can watch you in person too, because when you're moving okay. that fast and you're that fast of a sprinter, if I'm to just give you a program, you're already very elite. And then so if you're going to get faster and have someone work with you, the technique, the skill, and timing becomes so much more important. So that's my advice for you. Yeah. Okay. Is that fair. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, and love you, man. Appreciate Appreciate you hopping on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for responding my request and everything. Sure, take, care. <laughs> take care. I think you have to hang up on me. I yeah, sure, 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 definitely, definitely. I'm watching your videos and everything, and uh, I'm just uh, adding all some of the excess in my routine workouts. Awesome. Keep running fast, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, my friend. Love from India. I love you. Awesome. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Bye, 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 bye. Oh, that's awesome. All right, very cool. So that was cool. 
got sprinter on there running fast. And that's a good advice I like to give all my athletes is if you can and you are a top level at your athlete or you want to be top level or your specialty athlete, find someone who coaches that route because you as an athlete know a lot about yourself. And at a certain point it becomes a team effort. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to get a program and that's going to make me become an Olympian. But it's going to be me and a coach are going to work together because I might have things with the athlete that I feel about. I feel about, I feel a certain way about. And um, there are other things that I would maybe as a coach might see as maybe incorrect in some athletes. But because I know that athlete, I, I deem it to be correct or whatever it might be. All right. Um, we have other questions. Let's see what questions we got coming in. If you guys want to join the chat, you can request the video, but you have to ask a question either in the question box or the chat itself, if that makes sense. So we have a request from Danny or Dan, sorry, Dan. And if you have a question or request, it's awesome. You can join, but you have to ask the question first in the question box. I know what you're you know, going to ask about. Um, I have a, a topic today too. It's about training under fatigue. And so I've gotten quite, Questions and there's a book by Franz Bosch, which you guys can check out. It's a great book, wonderful book. I don't remember the name of the book, it's like Strength and Coordination or something like that. But he proposes the idea that a fatigued state, so when you're tired, whatever you want to deem that to be, when you train in that state, you actually build the qualities to operate better within that state. So one of the things that I did today in my training, I've done in the past. And this is for me. I'm just like an old man trying to jump a little bit higher. I call it dump conditioning. And I'll basically do a conditioning-like routine, but high power effort. So I'm trying to dunk a basketball. I'm trying to essentially fatigue myself and then not just dunk and like, oh, I'm going to dribble and take two steps, but off of moves. And it's challenging in a way, at least in theory, the ability for my body to organize itself and develop a consistent motor pattern to be more robust. It's not like I just need the perfect straightaway to dunk every time. I can actually build my ability to handle a variety of impacts and loads. And so actually think about it like this. I have a notepad. All right. So if I want to build my skill, there's two ways you can build the skill. There's like the optimization. So if you guys have ever jumped before, we'll do like a little drawing here. We'll say like, okay, if you hit within this circle, you're running and I'm gonna draw a little stick figure for you guys. So you're running and my guy is running, he's about to step here. And if he hits into this circle, right, my little running man runs and he hits in this circle, we know we have a good contact, a positive contact. If you've ever ran or jumped before, you've had times where you might step a little bit outside the circle and so on. So basically what happens is you might make like a bullseye, something like this, we have a bullseye. You hit in the ring, that's 100% perfect form and technique. You're like, wow, that was great. But you can still perform the movement even to a little bit of a deviation off to the side. So you're like, okay, I hit within that ring and maybe that's going to be a, let's see if I can do this here, a 10% reduction in performance, right? So that's going to be like a 10% reduction in format, performance. Maybe I hit way outside of that pattern here. And then now it's maybe like a 50% reduction in performance. So we have like, like I said, these rings, you can think about like a bullseye. If you're hitting the perfect spot in the bullseye, it's perfect skill. If you hit a little bit outside, it's lesser skill, but you can still do the movement. You've probably felt this before. You can think about even when you bench press or squat and do whatever lift, you might not be perfectly grooved, right, in the perfect position, but you can still 
lift the weight effectively. However, this is the fun part. If I totally miss and hit outside of this portion here, the, the movement just falls off completely. It's a complete zero. Um, you probably see some people run and they jump and they misstep and they fall kind of, or someone, uh, they misstep on a literal step or you get out of groove on a squat. All of a sudden your performance goes from what could have been 100% if you hit the bullseye, that's where your foot hits the ground, basically 0% because what happens is there's a mismatch between, we'll just call it a, a, an unequal equation between uh, your skill set and where you hit the, your foot. And so in theory, if we train under fatigue, we're going to not just get better at our skill, but we're going to take that circle, let's say um, the size of the circle is something like this here, and we might expand it to something much larger. So now we have a large, you can actually mathematically formulate that, a larger radius through which we can make an insufficient contact and still jump high. That's a pretty cool concept. It's called building a robust motor pattern. That is, if I wanna go jump and I wanna go run or whatever it might be, I don't have to have the perfect 100% setup every single time. I, my, my pattern can become more robust. And some arguments here are around injury reduction, I should say, um, and mitigation is that maybe it's a more robust motor pattern. I don't have to hit my foot in the most perfect time every single time. Or it's also, I get better at hitting my foot in the perfect position every single time, regardless of the situation I'm in. Now, what they actually showed was Nicola Bernstein did a research paper on this when he was tasked with trying to, I believe it was like the USSR at the time, trying to build more tanks, if I'm not mistaken. It was a very famous picture. It was a picture of a blacksmith, and we're going to draw a hammer. He has a hammer. We're going to draw my blacksmith here. And what happened is the blacksmith was trying to hit this, you know, anvil, let's just say, my blacksmith guy. And I'll just draw a couple of examples. He might look something like this, okay? Cool. And these are his arcs of patterns. What happens is there's large variations in the arc of pattern each time, but a consistent contact point right there. So the, the more proficient blacksmith actually had higher variability within their movement striking pattern, the guy hitting the hammer on the anvil, but he hit the right spot every single time. So there's a robustness to the ability to handle, you can see that, a large variability of movement. It's the same thing if someone's shooting a jump shot, someone is lifting, whatever, they can get slightly out of position. They can be in some of these, what you might think, sub-aqua positions and strike the right point every single time. And they actually found that a lesser skilled blacksmith would actually have a very similar arc every single time but then have deviations upon the contact itself. So there is some debate about whether or not having a consistent pattern is a good thing or a bad thing, or this natural variability within movement that is a good thing. Rob Gray has a wonderful book on this, and it brings about so many interesting ideas when it comes to movement as a whole. It's that variability is an okay thing. And this is something I tell my athletes. When we're doing plyometrics, <laughs> It's very rarely, you're not trying to have a perfect contact in terms of the perfect form every single time. We want a feeling every single time, but we know there's gonna be variability in it. So if I have someone who jumps over a hurdle, I'm gonna draw my little hurdle here, who jumps over a hurdle and hits the ground here. Yay, jumps over a hurdle and hits the ground. Well, sometimes it's gonna be a good jump and sometimes it's gonna be a bad jump and sometimes it's gonna be lesser or worse. And that's the whole point. 
we're challenging our ability to learn how we move in space. Now you can even challenge that further by adding external perturbations. So external perturbations, we're going to draw this little arrow in here, and we could say things like visual, things like sensory, things like uh, actual force outputs, and a visual one would be maybe they have to have um, their eyes closed at a certain point in time, or a sensory one, maybe they jump upon a contact or a motion, or maybe the force effort one is you change the height of the hurdle or the distance of the hurdle. All these things can be used to help um, manipulate how we move our, our movements, move our movements, how we, how we build a more robust movement pattern is what I was trying to say. Does that make sense? Cool. Hopefully it does. Um, we're going to go through some more stuff here. So far, so good. That's a cool topic. And that's what I did today. My training was I worked on being fatigued and I tried to then when I was fatigued, right, that's an external perturbation. Fatigue is one of those external perturbations. And then when I build my ability to have more robust contacts, I build my ability to build a more robust motor pattern. And then I add other perturbations, like maybe do it off a move, off of a drill, off of some type of uh, pattern, you might say. Um, pattern, perturbation. Oh, I, can't, I can't think of that. I need to drink more coffee. So any questions, comments so far you guys can ask? Another thing I wanted to talk about was um, about the general stress syndrome. So you have something called your HPA axis, and people might be familiar with this. People might not be um, because no one's asking questions. I get a rant about random things. It's your hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, and you can think about your HPA axis um, as your check engine light. This is how it's best taught to me. It governs your autonomic nervous system autonomic, I'm right over here, nervous system. And that's kind of two branches in your parasympathetic and your sympathetic. You probably have heard that before. And so when you activated your, it's, your body is so beautifully intelligent. It has a general process through which it mobilizes energy. It's not like you have an alarm that is set for exercise and a mobilizing lever that it pulls from when you talk to somebody. Um, at a bar, it's not a lever that it pulls when you need to talk to a big presentation or you're nervous studying. It is a general mobilization axis. That's your HPA axis, and you can dive into the specifics of the hormones that are released within it. I'm not here to talk about that, more about the general concept. And when this thing gets an alarm or a stressor, we can call it a stressor. That's my stressor symbols, you know, stress thing, and notifies the HPA axis. It will say, okay, cool, we need to activate our sympathetic nervous system, this specific branch, and that's going to mobilize energy. So things like uh, adrenaline will be released, and things like uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, things like cortisol will be released, fast acting and slow acting, different time gradients. And they allow energy to be mobilized. They might acutely increase the mobilization of uh, blood glucose from the liver, and it allows your body to utilize that because your body has sub fuel source it has you know fuel responsibilities and demands it needs to meet now what can happen is there's some debates about this there's a great book on this called why zebras don't get ulcers which is a wonderful book if you're a casual reader or a scientific reader it is a fun easy to read book that's very informative but basically what can happen is thanks to our human consciousness we can have excessive activation of this hpa axis 
what can happen is we induce stressors upon ourselves, whether it is future predicted worrisome stressors, whether it's social media stressors, whether it's anticipatory stressors about an event coming up, alongside other actual more basic stressors, like I need to work out, so I have to mobilize energy to overcome the obstacle of working out. I have to make a presentation, so of course I need energy to actually present in front of people. Or I'm going to go on an Instagram Live at the top people. All those are going to be means through which we might have an HPA access activation. Now, um, sometimes it's positive in the sense that it is anticipatory for what you're trying to accomplish and you need it. You do need the mobilization of energy and sometimes it's maybe not as beneficial. You have excessive activation of it when you aren't actually going to do a physical activity or any type of endeavor that requires a huge amount of external focus. So what does that mean? Um, when it comes to your training process, even your just general well-being, being able to go in and out of sympathetic tone is important. So certain breathing exercises might promote the down regulation of the sympathetic branch and the more up regulation of, well, typically it's not massive up regulation of parasympathetic tone as much as down regulation of sympathetic tone. But you can do things to look at um, your heart rate, HRV, heart rate variability is kind of a general or a macro overarching means of looking at your HPA autonomic nervous system, HPA access, your autonomic nervous system, things like Oura Ring, things like Whoop are great. Omega Wave, things like that are great means and tools to use. I'm sure people might even have it like on their Apple Watch. And then you can do things maybe like breathing exercises to acutely downregulate. I know coaches who advocate for certain breathing exercises after a training session because they want to pull off the sympathetic tone and activation. While on the other side, if you're getting ready for a workout and you want to get excited for it, you have to have some level of sympathetic activation to actually go and be excited for the workout. And so this brings up an interesting kind of song and dance about working out your nervous system is sometimes when you go to train, you might have a very low quote unquote arousal state. You're not very excited to work out. It takes a long time to work out. And it could be just the general engagement. You're not interested in it, but, or you, or you could do things that maybe help activate certain pathways within here. So there's certain games you might be able to play certain exercises you might enjoy. I heard like the old stories of when you're fatigued and you're not really interested in training because of whatever ever low grade mental motivation you don't have, just pick like two of your favorite exercises and just do them for some reps. I heard someone like, oh, just go do some chest flies or go do some whatever before your upper before your lower body workout because you like them. And by doing that, you have some level of positive reinforcement. What's also important about that is maybe the inability to get your heart rate up, maybe your heart rate back down. So there's a thing called heart rate acceleration and heart rate recovery. You can do standardized testing for that, maybe on a treadmill. Look how high your heart rate gets after a given speed for three minutes. How long does it take to accelerate? So basically, it looks like this. I'll draw it up. I have my notepad. Just give me not too many free gems here today. We have, um, we could call this your heart rate. We can call this time. We can call this a like standard treadmill speed. We'll say seven miles per hour. And what can happen is when you have someone work out, they're going to have an escalation of this heart rate. So the heart rate is going to go up and then it might stabilize. What you can measure twofold, one, the rate of increase of your heart rate. So it's called heart rate acceleration, the speed at which it is. You could measure the average heart rate upon um, sustainment of a plateau. 
And then you could also measure heart rate recovery. How long does it take to get down to a certain percentage or near resting heart rate? So if we have like resting heart rate here, we could say how long does it take to get back down? Is it shorter? This is the shorter it is actually the better sign of cardiovascular fitness and aerobic fitness. Um, also a lower heart rate at a given speed on the treadmill is important to relate to as well. Because you can do all this and you can use it as a standardized testing tool to see how you feel physically. Kind of a clever little way you can use it. Um, again, something that you can use to manage your feedback and training protocols on a day-to-day -day outside of just internal RPE. RPE is like your rate of perceived exertion. There's some argument that this might be an internal indicator before your rate of perceived exertion because your body is essentially going to find a way to make sure you can operate. And one of the last things that go is your rate of perceived exertion, your rate of ability to actually determine if you're fatigued or not because your body doesn't want to be fatigued, so it will operate and use other supporting systems. The way you can think about a system is something like this. If I want to keep my mental readiness high, we'll say mental readiness high. This is just an example, by the way. There are many subsystems involved in the support of this, and we can just call it subsystem one, sub two, and sub three. And they all act to support my mental readiness. Now, maybe during times of low demand, these things all operate at submaximal intensity. So maybe this is operating at like 40%, 30%. And 40%. All right, very cool. It's supporting my ability to be mentally ready or physically ready, whatever it might be. So my RPE does not change. We'll say my RPE remains, my readiness is like, we'll say 9 out of 10. Hooray, Max. Cool. 9 out of 10. Now I start to train and I work really hard. And I get fatigued from my life and training. And these subcategories now have to work at 100%. All right, okay. Very cool. They're both all working very hard, but they can still support this. The demand of my mental and physical readiness is still being supported and met by my subsystems. Um, but then at a certain point, my demand reaches too high. And so I can still maintain a nine out of 10 readiness scale, even though these subsystems are working very hard. And then eventually I might hit a seven out of 10 on my readiness scale. Okay, well, what happens then? Well, these subsystems are cranking really hard to support my physical being or my mental readiness but what's happening is they're actually being taxed beyond their capacity so it's like okay so my subsystem one two and three are working at 100 percent which requires a large amount of physiological load and demand but on top of that what's happening is there is a lack of clearance rates so you can almost think about it like when i am cooking food and i um turn the stove on really hot if i have my stove in my um, let's say my steam coming off my pan or the smoke coming off the pan is matching the demands of my fan extracting it, there's going to be a net zero, net zero total accumulation. However, if my fan is extracting 90%, that means there's a 10% residual accumulation. So we're starting to have here is a measurement of accumulation. And the question is, when I go from nine to a seven readiness, is that too late because these subsystems are already taxed? And there's some debate about that, that they, these subsystems operate in a cascading fashion. So then the recovery of those subsystems are then the inverse of that. Those subsystems eventually get back down to, you know, 70% of demand and need of them, 50% of need of them. And that's when total recovery is best. And there's some debates as to whether or not that's where overtraining comes from and 
that's kind of like the, the big issue in terms of overtraining is that we actually are going down that pathway too soon. And that's where planned recoveries and deload days might be beneficial because you might not feel like you need them, but you're basically hedging your bets that you will eventually need them. If, you know, hopefully that makes sense. Um, I'm going to leave that here for today. I'm going to end up saving this video and putting it up on YouTube and my podcast. For those of you who want to listen, I know you might not have been able to watch this or catch it, whatever it might be. I think a lot of this information is really useful for a lot of people. And it's something I want to continue to do. If you guys like these videos, please let me know. Please share them. Please follow whatever the heck people do on Instagram Live. I'm trying to make more of these as we go along. Um, again, today we covered some stuff about fatigue and training. We talk about some of the subsystems of the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access and some of the, this is a complex uh, systems theory. So it's kind of a cool idea in retraining. So it's a kind of a nerdy process, but that's why I enjoy and what I like. If you guys like these, feel free to um, check out the YouTube video if you missed the first part of it. And then I'll share this later on in my channels as well. The channel, you can subscribe to my page. Um, what is that? The like, whatever the Instagram channel is. So I appreciate you guys. Take care. Hope you enjoy and peace out.